I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Muses. We are the podcast all about the incredible women of music history. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, and I'm so happy that Shanti, you were able to come and join me for this one after. I think it's been like about a month since I've released something. It's been a busy time just trying to enjoy the summer, working a lot. How have you been? The exact same. Having a glorious summer so far. I was just outside in my dog's pool, which is now my pool. Yep, having uh, a drink and enjoying the sun. and Yeah, we both work so hard. So when we get a day off, it's nice to just relax and enjoy the sun while we have it. You know what I did last night? What did you do? I went and saw Elvis. Oh, tell me how it was. Yeah, so I was supposed to go last Tuesday to the like Century Cinema in like my historic little downtown. So it's a cinema that is like step back through time. Like that's its slogan. There's only three theaters and I guess it was cheap night because I accidentally went on Tuesday. It was cheap night. It was like the first night that school was out. And there was a long line of teenagers in suits. Oh, okay. Ready for minions. So I was like, I do not want to walk in late to Elvis. I never go out to see movies. So I'm going to go back on Friday. So I went back last night. It's, you know, the same director that did Romeo and Juliet, my famous sexual awakening. (laughs) <laughs> all of us 90s kids yeah Boz Lerman right that's his name yeah and so yeah the movie was very much like his style and then very you know very carnival and it was like batshit I loved it it was so good it was so 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 good it's funny because our friend Layla who we're in a group chat with said that it wasn't horny enough for her right Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and like, I totally get that. And the one like almost kind of horny scene where Elvis is giving Priscilla a passionate kiss, there was just this like elderly woman with the wettest cough. Oh no, <laughs> that's not sexy at all. Just wet coughing through the entire kiss. Oh. So the one part that was a little bit, you know, it was uh, it was ruined. 
I'm going to try to get it in when it's in the theater before it's gone because you have to it was delightful I wish we could have gone together that would have been so much fun mm-hmm. yeah it was absolutely amazing I loved it it was cra- it was batshit crazy it was it was so good okay cool well maybe when I do go we can uh, discuss maybe do like a, um, a bonus episode or something and have a chat about it okay I'm excited for this episode. I've been wanting to do one on Jordan for a really long time. She put out a book last year, and I don't know if listeners know this, but usually we wait about a year before we do an episode if someone's released something new just to get people time to check it out themselves. But Jordan, unfortunately, passed away in April. Oh, my God. So... I immediately started reading the book, but of course I took a little hiatus, but I knew I wanted to do her first when I came back into it. So this is a special episode and she is such an icon and she's a perfect example of what we do here because she was so influential and not a lot of people know about her, no. but she she defined the punk scene in the UK. So I am happy to finally be discussing her. Let's do it. And I showed you pictures. I showed you pictures before because I wanted you to see just how original and amazing she was. And anyone who hasn't seen pictures of her yet, I suggest just Googling so that you can fully digest everything I'm, I'm going to tell you. What's the best thing to Google? Is it just like Jordan 19 something or like the year or what? She was born Pamela Rook. So you can look up Pamela Rook or Jordan Rook, R-O-O-K-E, and she'll pop up for sure. Or Jordan Punk even. She's she's iconic. And her book is called Defying Gravity, and I cannot recommend it enough. Not only is it her story, but there's intertwining oral history about the birth of punk, the fashion, the music. It just encompasses everything about the punk scene in that time and it's really well written and super informative great as i said she was born pamela ann rook on june 23rd 1955 in a town called seaford in east sussex she was the youngest child of stan and rosalind stan worked for the nhs dental board and her mom was a seamstress and a barmaid She also had a sister named Jenny and a brother named Roger. They were a pretty tight-knit family. She mentioned some dark family history, such as her mother leaving the family for another man and her dealing with deep depression, but she was really too young at the time to really remember or have that affect her. But by the time she was older, her family was back together, but there was always like a cloud there that her older siblings and everyone kind of dealt with. She was always obsessed with dance, music, and fashion, and really always throughout her life combined all three of those things. She talks about playing dress-up while playing her older sister's record player. Around six or seven, she began ballet. Her first record was The Nutcracker. She would create her own ballet clothes out of her mother's chiffons. And her parents really didn't have much money when she was growing up, but they knew her passion for dance, and they always really went that extra mile for her when they could. This was in post-war London and her dad had been a soldier and the family was sort of still living by the make do and mend slogan. I think this no doubt added to her creativeness when it came to fashion. With ballet she would constantly spend hours mending and fixing her clothes, her shoes, you know, to make them last. It's like the slogan that I live by. Yeah, exactly. It's a smart slogan. And she would later do that with her clothing as well when she was older. She was always unique and always stood out. The kids at school really took issue with that. But when she was young, she befriended an older girl who kind of became a protector of sorts and would fight off anyone who was trying to bully her. And she was really appreciative of that. And when she got older, she often took that protector role when it came to other women and friends in the punk scene and everything. Good move. At school, she was pretty average. She enjoyed literature. She loved sports. She was the captain of the hockey team and also ran track. During the summers, she spent a lot of time at the pub that her mother worked at. 
And she would also go fishing with her father and just adventures around Seaford. It was a beach town. So she really loved growing up by the water. By high school, she had a group of close girlfriends and her closest, Sally, actually came to live with her and her family. They shared a nerdy passion. I love this because I used to do nerd shit like this too. (laughs) They shared a passion for Star Trek and they would record the TV episodes on a tape recorder and then transcribe them into scripts and then elaborate on them and make up their own stories and like act them out. Oh my God. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. I love it. Oh yeah. I remember listening to music on tape and writing out the lyrics and then like doing stuff where we recorded ourselves onto those tapes. Yeah. Me and my friends would write short stories involving like our life and, you know, things we wanted to have happen, like meeting bands and everything. So nerdy, Mm -hmm. but so fun. Mm -hmm. When she was 13 years old, she saw a poster of Mia Farrow from Rosemary's Baby, and she loved the haircut so much that she cut hers short to kind of imitate it. She got made fun of a lot at school for it, but she didn't care. She loved her look. Screw anyone else's opinion. A huge life-changing moment happened for her on July 4th, 1970. She was 15 years old. She was walking with her friend and she went to cross the street and she got hit by a car that was going 40 miles an hour. She sustained three fractures to her pelvis and her pubic bone had crossed over. Oh. Yeah. She also had an elbow injury and bit open her tongue. She had been wearing a backpack across her hip, and this was the only thing that saved her from losing her leg or worse. Oh, shit. Yeah. They called an ambulance, and at the hospital, they had to pull out her thigh socket to, like, move the pelvis back into place. When I was in university, I it was Halloween, and I was biking with my friend Corey, because we biked all over the city. And we went and bought pumpkins and beer. And we had pumpkins and beer in our bike baskets. And she was biking ahead of me. We went through like an intersection. She was turning left. She got hit by a car. Damn. On her bike. She w- she was ended up being fine and ended up like not going to the hospital and going to the party that night. But there was just beer and like pumpkin <sighs> guts all over the road. Wow. And to think that like could have been her guts. No, just pumpkin guts, thankfully. Thankfully, yeah. Damn. Jordan also lost a few vertebrae at the base of her spine due to the pressure of the blow. So she was actually put in traction. She had serious pain moving, laying down. Her elbow was still numb till the day she died. She couldn't ever sleep on her back after this and had a permanent bruise on her thigh for the rest of her life. Oh, shit. She had to actually spend 10 weeks in traction in the hospital. Over the summer, her friends would visit and bring her music magazines, and she kind of immersed herself into the growing glam rock scene. She began to get new ideas for looks she wanted to create when she got out of the hospital. It took her four months after being released to walk properly again. Her welcome home gift was a radiogram that her parents and friends all pitched in to buy her. Dancing was obviously a huge issue after this, but she had such a passion for it. She was determined to dance again, and she began taking ballet once again, but she had to start at the toddler level and work her way up to regain her talent. She actually ended up winning a dance competition after this. Like That's how determined she was that she wasn't going to lose her passion. Wow. She never had any boyfriends during her school years. She does mention being asked out once, and she was so excited that she created a dress for the occasion, and the guy was so intimidated by her that the dress got her dumped because he was like, this is too much. (laughs) (laughs) One of her first concert experiences was The Faces. She had a big thing for Rock Stewart, especially his look. He was a rock star that made fashion seem viable to her, and she ended up getting a similar crop I love when women style their hair after, like, the male rock stars, if they yeah. like, or just, like, whoever. Like, yeah, like Patti Smith with Keith Richards. They had the yeah. same. Yeah. Exactly. Love it. 
Another big concert happened in May of 73 when she saw David Bowie perform. She went to the front of the stage in an outfit she created to get attention, and it worked. She had one earring on that she made from bird feathers and pearls that she took from an old necklace, and Bowie loved it and actually asked her if he could have it, and she said no. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. She's like, hell no, this is my look. Mm -hmm. At 16, she met a friend named Dave, He was gay and he really loved fashion as much as she did. And he was the one who kind of introduced her to the club and music scene. And through him, she really found her first gang of sort of misfits like her. She began attending a lot of gay clubs or places that had, you know, misfits such as herself. Places like the Curtain Club, Spotted Dog and 42 Club. She was heavily kind of getting into the glam scene at this point. And... Of course, glam would sort of meld its way into punk. She really loved blurring the lines of masculine and feminine. In 1973, she first bleached her hair and dyed it pink with a red stripe in it and a razor cut at the sides. This was something no one was doing at the time, and she actually got suspended at school for it. She was asked to change it. She refused. Then they asked her to wear a headscarf in class so no one could see it because They didn't want anyone getting rebellious ideas here, right? Right. So instead, she just showed up outside the school and stood at the entrance so everyone could see it while they went into school. (laughs) She ended up leaving school at 18. She had, I'm not, I'm not familiar with British uh, school, but she had six O levels and two A levels in law and English. Her parents very much hated her new look and fashion sense. Her mom was always embarrassed to go out with her, but she really made this conscious decision to follow her own path and expression, and she wasn't going to let anyone affect that. So since she was kind of entering this new phase of life, she wanted new everything, new style, new identity. This is when she kind of began playing around with different names. She called herself Jipper for a while before Jordan came about. She named herself Jordan after a character in The Great Gatsby. And that character was actually inspired by a real life woman named Edith Cummings. Edith was the first female athlete to be on the cover of Time magazine in 1924. She was a golfer and another woman breaking barriers. So it very much fit her. Cool. Yeah, I think like between those two names, Jordan was definitely the way to go. Mm -hmm. So Jordan's brother had recently married and moved to London. And that kind of inspired Jordan to move there as well. She ended up moving to Chelsea. She got a job at a boutique in Harrods and... As I mentioned, a new look with this new adventure. She began doing her makeup in pale green, and she changed her hair into this big blonde bouffant. When she was in London, she would go to a stylist who was kind of very avant-garde like herself, and they would actually spend hours discussing and executing these iconic looks. His name was Robert Lobeda. This was also a point where she met Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. They were partners in real life and in business. So I'm going to tell a little bit about the history of the fashion and the music and kind of meld it all together here because it's so much part of Jordan. Please do. Malcolm and Vivian first had a stall in the back of a shop called Paradise Garage where they kind of sold knickknacks, records, and then they took over the entire shop from the original owner. It was located on King's Road, which was very much, again, like a misfit area at the time where the punk scene was to grow out of. They changed the name to Let It Rock. It had a very 50s vibe, Teddy Boy kind of clientele at first. Then in 1973, this shop became too fast to live, too too young to die. And the direction shifted a bit into like a hard biker type of look. It was definitely a hotspot in the area, and it attracted all types of people. It was a hangout and not just a shop. At this point, Vivian and Malcolm began manufacturing more clothes. Vivian was making originals, which grew out of kind of revamping her old vintage stuff. So from like Teddy Boy to Biker, it kind of involved more into like vinyl and fetish type of fashion. In 1974, they were banded once again to reflect the new direction, and they decided to go with an eye-catching name, which was Sex. Mm -hmm. 
Naming it this was interesting because the store was already kind of intimidating to some. And so it was kind of like a test to see if you were like, how cool are you? Like, are you are you brave enough to go to sex? Of course, Jordan was very intrigued. And when she went there, she immediately introduced herself to a man who was working there at the time. His name was Michael Collins. They hit it off. And Jordan told him to call her should they ever be looking for a new employee. It really did not take long for her to get that call. And just like that, she became a massive figurehead for the shop. She was great at her job. She knew how to make shoppers feel comfortable. And she could always recognize what someone's fetish may be. You know, who who were the leather people? Who were the rubber people? How to get people to open up about it. Also, some of the clothing was like difficult to, to get on and off. And you'd, you'd have to like help people. <laughs> yeah. The outfits that Vivian was making were all unique. Almost nothing was recreated. So you could walk around in originals and not worry that you'd be, you know, wearing the same thing as someone else at a show. There's an iconic photo of the sex team in this era. I sent it to you. Included in the photo is Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. She also worked there before Jordan did. But apparently she was fired because she was dating an NME writer named Nick Kent. And he was a lunatic and like would come into work and they would fight. And it was just not a good scene in the store. And she got fired for it. It seems fucked up that she would get fired for like having a shitty boyfriend. But I guess she wasn't willing to split with him and their relationship was affecting the workplace at the time. Alrighty then. So many famous people and yet to be famous people were visiting the shop during this time. I'm going to list off a crazy list here. Johnny Thunders, Grace Jones, Manolo Blahnik, Helen Mirren, Jessica Lange, Jerry Hall, Bianca and Mick Jagger came and they were like laughed out of the store. They, they were like, you don't belong here. Oh, okay. Some soon to be famous people who are always around Boy George, Joyce Strummer, Billy Idol, Polystyrene, The Slits, The Damned, Susie and the Banshees, Lemmy, just everyone you can think of from the punk scene in that time. Isn't there, um, it's not a documentary, but it's like with actors and everything, and it's about the Sex Pistols, yeah. I believe. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. I know Danny Boyle, who did Train Spotting, is behind it. I've heard like good things about it, I think. Yeah. I think it's on Disney and I don't have that currently, but... Yeah, I don't have it anymore because it wasn't very good. Speaking of the Sex Pistols, Paul Cook and Steve Jones were regulars. They were playing in an odd bands at the time and they approached Malcolm about managing them. So Malcolm was a bit older than everyone in the punk scene and kind of like a father figure to them, especially Steve. He helped them find their first rehearsal space but I don't think he was super focused on music until he visited New York in 74. He went to kind of sell the punk look that they were creating. He was already friends with people in New York, like the New York Dolls, because they had visited. And while there, he really got immersed in the music scene. And that's when he really decided to put like the 50s thing behind for good and focus on like a new sound, a new look. Yep. Vivian began making custom looks for different bands as well. And when Malcolm came back, he was set on managing a band and combining both the fashion and the music world into one. So Steve and Paul found Glenn Matlock to join their new band, and they set out to find a singer. By then, Simon Ritchie and John Lydon, a.k.a. Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten, were regulars at the shop. And Jordan and Vivian really thought Sid would be the perfect fit to lead the band, but Malcolm was more fixated on John and kind of asked him to do this impromptu audition. He asked John, can you sing? And John said, no, but I can sing out of tune. And <laughs> just like that, the Sex Pistols were formed. Mm. Around this time, Jordan lost her flat. And for a while, she had to commute each day from Seaford. She'd be on the train every day in her crazy avant-garde get-ups and they didn't go over that well with all the businessmen and you know regular people on the train she says sometimes everyone would leave the train altogether when she got on <laughs> one time she was wearing a see-through bra and underwear and like fishnets and the police were called and th like, threatened <laughs> to arrest her sometimes she got escorted off the train she really became famous in Seaford much to her parents embarrassment but she yeah. did not care. 
She also has a story about meeting this 80-year-old businessman on the train who was like, come visit me. And she was like, come visit me. And he actually did visit her at sex. And it turned out he was interested in wearing women's lingerie and just like wanted an audience while he modeled them. Perfect. Yeah. He went to the right he went to the right place. Yeah. Jordan's first sexual encounter was actually with a man that she met on the train a few years earlier. She mentions him being great, but in the end that he really couldn't handle that she was such a strong, independent woman, which happened a lot in her dating life. I'm gonna quote her here. I have to be with someone who will allow me to be me. Most of my years working at the shop and in the music business were spent with men who were totally and utterly shit scared of me. I heard it in all the years that followed. No one no one could handle her. Nope. Let's go back to the Pistols for a minute. I'm going to tell their story. The first song they came up with in rehearsals was pretty vacant. Glenn was really the guy who wrote the music and Johnny the lyrics. They did not get along. Malcolm booked their first gig some months into rehearsals and Malcolm asked Jordan to be on stage with the band. Many wondered why at the time Jordan wasn't ever considered to be in the band and the simple answer is sexism. In Paul Mm -hmm. Cook's book, he literally admits we were way too blokey to have a girl in the band. Mm -hmm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. So right away, they were getting gigs, doing small tour of England. If they weren't booked somewhere and they wanted to play, they would just show up and claim management mix-ups and get on the bill. Sometimes Jordan would dance on stage with them. There's some iconic photos of a night where Malcolm asked Jordan to get naked on stage. She refused unless she sort of got to direct a scene. Like she wanted to not just be a dancer. She wanted people to think And she staged this scene with Johnny where he pinned her down on the floor with her half naked and she had like no expression on her face. And she says, 
I'm not reacting, which is my sort of feminism. Do your worst, but do something. Don't just stand there and pose. What I'm trying to get at is that the woman can come out on top in that situation. Interesting. Soon the press were taking notice and crowds were coming to see them. One friend and fan, as I mentioned, was Simon Ritchie, Sid, who had quickly kind of gone from a Bowie-loving glam kid to a violent punk. He shortly worked at Sex, and he started a band with Viv Albertine from the Slits called Flowers of Romance. If anyone's interested, I have an, we have an episode on Viv Albertine way back, and the Slits are amazing. So I, if you haven't checked it out, please go check it out. Sid also very briefly, like maybe once or twice, played drums for Susie and the Banshees. When the Pistols made their TV debut on So It Goes, Jordan was there. Hours before the show, the station began to try to censor their clothing and performance. You can see Jordan in the performance, though, dancing and making a scene to like a stunned audience. The next Pistol performance had them playing with the Buzzcocks and the Clash. Like, what a lineup. A week later, they performed in Paris. And Jordan and Susie from Susie and the Banshees, they went in a car driven by a very young Billy Idol to the gig. Apparently, Susie was actually assaulted by French patrons at the show because of her punk outfit. They were not quite ready yet for the the punk thing, I guess. Okay. Malcolm joined forces with a management company called Glitterbest to book the Pistols more shows and to gain attention to major labels. They ended up signing and Malcolm signed the Pistols with him making 2% off their earnings and 50% off any merchandise. Glenn was like, we should have a lawyer overlook this. But the other guys were like, eh, whatever, and signed it, which, of course, would later come back to bite them in the ass and cause a lot of issues between all of them. For sure. There was a rivalry between the Pistols and the Damned around this time due to Sid throwing a glass of beer at them on stage. This is a crazy thing that happened. It shattered on a pillar and sent glass into the audience and it like blinded a a woman that was in the audience. Yeah, he was arrested. He was beaten by the police. He was sent to a rubber man center for a while. Anyway, in October, the Pistols signed a two-year contract with EMI for 40,000 pounds advance and recorded Anarchy in the UK. Touring and press happened and a big to-do after being interviewed by a man named Grundy. There was a bunch of backlash in the press. The pressing plant for the record company went on strike, refusing to sleeve their album. Then the press ganged up on the Pistols again, and they would like follow them. They would try to annoy them, to incite fights, to cause more stories, to sell papers. All the negativity that was around them caused so many venues to cancel. They had a 22 gig tour planned and only ended up playing seven shows because of all the bad press. All the while, though, of course, anarchy is rising up in the charts. Even still, EMI wanted nothing to do with them after all of this. So they went their separate ways. Glenn also left the band. Him and Johnny just could not get, get it together. Johnny hated him. And this is when Sid joined the band. Johnny and Sid were really close. That also wouldn't last all that much due to kind of both of them wanting to be the the mouthpiece and the center of attention for all situations. But Sid did have this star magnetism. And Jordan says everyone kind of picked on Glenn until he quit because it was like they wanted Sid to join and they wanted him out. So they kind of forced him out. After EMI dropped them, they signed to AMM for a two-year deal again with an advance of $75,000, 18 tracks, and not including publishing. The band fought all night, got loaded drunk, and in the morning, they're on their way to a press conference where there's going to take place outside of Buckingham Palace, and it was such a disaster that AMM kicked them off the label the very next day. <laughs> They managed to get signed again, magically, by Virgin, and they sold 15,000 copies of their next album, God Save the Queen, in five days, which was very impressive since the BBC wouldn't play them and so many stores refused to sell it. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, it was number 11 on the charts for the first week. Then their infamous Jubilee boat ride takes place. So, again, Malcolm was kind of a marketing genius. They decided to play Anarchy in the UK outside of the Parliament on a boat 
And of course, it was just a chaotic mess. Too many people were on board. Johnny was in a terrible mood, more terrible than usual. The police came. They turned electricity off. They started beating people, dragging them out. It was just chaos. You can find some of the footage of them playing on it on YouTube. Jordan managed to walk out of there. And again, the Pristols were front page news. So Malcolm got his press. I guess it would be a good time to kind of mention the drug scene that was going on. It was mostly weed and speed, but this is when heroin kind of began to take over. Yeah. Many blame Johnny Thunders and the New York bands for bringing it over, but that's not necessarily the case. Like Jordan had already been dabbling in it as well as many others in the scene. Jordan says you can't blame, you know, the New York Dolls or anything for the heroin, but you can blame the New York Dolls for bringing Nancy Spongin over in, into the scene. <laughs> Nancy had a huge thing for Jerry Nolan, who was in the New York Dolls. He had a girlfriend named Phyllis Stein, but that didn't stop Nancy from flying all the way to England when the Dolls came to try to win him over. Of course, that didn't work. She discovered the pistols. She first set her eyes on Johnny. Johnny was not interested. Then her and Sid happened. Jordan does say that Sid once asked her out, but that he was just like very sexually naive and not really her type. So that never actually happened. They were just friends. One person who took inspiration from the pistols through all of this and a new element, important element in Jordan's life was a young man named Stuart Goddard who decided to form his own band and write his own material. He soon changed his name to Adam Ant. I was waiting for it. I was like, Stuart Goddard is not going to stick. This is going to be someone <laughs> famous. What did he change his name to? Boom, there it is. Yeah. So he began performing. He was opening for the Banshees. He would wear this black leather mask with a zip mouth, like all leather. He was really inspired by the pistols, but also the slits and Jordan. In fact, he was so obsessed with Jordan for a long time before they met that he would actually send anonymous love letters to the shop to sex while she was working. And she was, she was like, who's this admirer? Mm. And it was Adam Ant. So they soon became friends and... I sort of around this point is also when Adam asked if Jordan would be interested in managing his band and kind of becoming business partners. There's a quote in the book from Adam that I really loved about Jordan. He says, Jordan created punk rock. She was literally selling it on the front line. She was living it on public transport when others were just dressing up. There's fashion and style, and she's the epitome of style. It was an extremely auspicious start to have somebody looking that good managing us. Wow. She had other really cool creative ventures happening around this time as well. As we know, she attracted attention everywhere she went, and one person whose eye she caught was a filmmaker named Derek Jarman. He'd seen her around, and one day they crossed paths through mutual friends. He was filming his first feature, which was Sebastian, and he asked if she would appear in the opening scenes. She did. They hit it off. They became friends. Jarman is a very fascinating, creative visual director. I really enjoy watching his films. He also filmed the first live footage of the Pistols, and that ended up being in their film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. So Derek was fascinated with Jordan and her creativity and what she represented as a whole. And he asked her to collaborate on his next film, which ended up being called Jubilee. Here's another quote from Derek about Jordan. As far as I was concerned, Jordan was original. Everyone else in the fashion side follows on from Jordan even Vivian and the shop because without Jordan the shop wouldn't have worked she was the original sex pistol everyone else came in and saw Jordan dressed up and the attitude and it took off from there she was the godfather godmother she was the purest example of them all incredible yeah just amused to everyone mm-hmm. they began that summer in 77 to film Jubilee. The film is about it's really it's really an interesting film. It's about Angel Ariel taking Elizabeth the first into the future to show her the silver Jubilee year. It was originally supposed to be a documentary, but Derek changed it into scripted. And Jordan initially was kind of taken aback. She's like, I'm not an actress. This is 
not something I've ever thought of doing, but she was like, why not give it a try? There are so many other punk icons in the film. Adam Ants in the film, Toya Wilcox, Jane County, the Slits are in it, Nell Campbell, who played Columbia in uh, Rocky Horror, and Richard O'Brien, who is Riff Raff in Rocky Horror. Amazing. The opening scene is this ballet dance scene that was improvised by Jordan and shot in two takes around this big bonfire. The bonfire was big and she had to get really close to it and she burned her legs and face getting so close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she crushed her toes on the concrete, but the end result is beautiful. Okay, good. (laughs) In, In the film, almost all the leading characters get their own song to perform. Jordan ends up lip singing to Rule Britannia and that's the only scene in the film where she's not wearing her own clothes. She styled herself for the rest of the shoot. It was released in 1978 with an X rating. Jordan was on the poster and she didn't even know it until she saw herself on a big billboard in Notting Hill. <laughs> Reviews for the film were very mixed. Her parents were really shocked by it. A lot of the other punks in the scene like really hated it. No one seems to have hated it more than Vivian Westwood, though, who wrote this open letter to Derek Jarman and like really laid into him, calling it like the most boring and therefore disgusting film she'd ever seen. She called him like a sellout and all that kind of bullshit. She screen printed the letter onto a T-shirt and would sell them at the shop. (laughs) Vivian has since taken it back and apologized and won't let anyone else reprint that shirt. Many, including myself, think she was just jealous and possessive of Jordan, and Mm -hmm. that's how she took it out. Also, it's really funny. Vivian has since accepted an OBE, like an Order of the British Empire, and Jarman took note, and he was like quoted being like, our punk friends accept their little medals of betrayal. (laughs) Like, you're called me a sellout? Like, come on. So Jubilee played at Cannes, and it had a better reception. She met Bowie again while there. Jordan and Derek would remain lifelong friends, and she worked with him randomly over the years. He passed away in the 90s, but they collaborated more than once. There's actually since been a stage production of Jubilee as well, and Toya Wilcox, who plays one of the punks in it, she ends up playing the queen in the stage play. But Jordan said she didn't attend. And the film is now like much more respected. I love it. I think it's worth watching if only just as a time capsule of that time um, and just did, visually creative. When did you first watch it? Like how did that come into your world? I probably first heard about Jordan like as a teenager and I loved like the slits as well and all the people in it. So I made a point to find it. It's actually on Criterion now. Mm. It is like are respected and it's got a great set and lots of features and everything but it's it's, just, it's an interesting film it's like an art film but it's and she's amazing in it especially knowing she wasn't an actress Honestly, or anything sometimes tg and i will be browsing through netflix and it's like garbage 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 and it's like why don't we watch this kind of stuff yeah try something like, different it, well yeah and as people who like appreciate real film and music and art and stuff it's like why are we scrolling through this app when there are these movies out there that like haven't even heard of but i know are probably amazing you know instead of disney plus get criterion for a month you know exactly it's worth it for sure Mm -hmm. there's so many good good films out there so the punk scene with the pistols and these films and everything was really starting to gain traction and of course the press was all over it and the Sunday Mirror ended up writing a piece titled Punish the Punks and that actually began a string of assaults on young punks by just random assailants who kind of took issue with them and you know made their own assumptions about what kind of life they were living or whatever they were getting it from the cops the teddy boys like anyone who didn't want someone else to be different basically Mm -hmm. So I mentioned Jordan's managing the Adam and the Ants. They're getting gigs, rehearsing their writing. She also used to go up on stage and perform with them. She wrote a song called Lou about seeing Lou Reed perform and being very disappointed in it. <laughs> um, she talks about the power of performing and the feeling she got from it. She went with them on their first tour 
It sounds like it was wild, you know, breakdowns, fights, injuries, just lots of life lessons happening. They went on tour in Italy after that. Jordan, of course, is a muse for Adam, not just uh, visually, but he wrote a song called Send a Letter to Jordan about, you know, sending all the love letters to her and everything. So she has a song written about her. So meanwhile, the Pistols released Nevermind the Bollocks. That gets banned all over, but advanced orders, I think it was like 150,000, make it go straight to number one. Cops were actually seizing copies from places and arresting people who would put it on display. It's so ridiculous, like the amount of effort they went with for just like some music, you know. The Pistols actually had to go to court and argue the case and the case got dismissed. The Pistols are also having a lot of issues right now. Sid and Nancy's like in full force. She wanted to go on the tour. The others didn't want her to. They thought, you know, keeping them separate might help with the addiction issues. Jordan was really worried about Sid when they went on their U.S. tour because she knew if they got in trouble there, it would be much worse than getting in trouble in the U.K. Mm -hmm. Of course, the tour absolutely was a disaster. Malcolm had them playing places like the Deep South and like their image and what they stood for just did not go over well. Major issues with the band were happening. The infamous San Francisco gig where Johnny asked the audience, do you ever get the feeling you're being cheated before, you know, Mike drop and quitting the band happened? Sid also OD'd on the tour. The band breaks up. Johnny ends up creating a new band called Public Enemy. Sid and Nancy are back together. That's when they kind of decide to move to New York City. And we all know what happened there. Oh, by the way, I also have an episode on Sid and Nancy for anyone who's listening that hasn't checked that one out. Lots about Nancy in that if you want to learn about them. So good. It's a new year ahead, a new era happening. Jordan decides to change her look again. This time she got red hair, red contact lenses, and would put on this kind of white theatrical face paint. She calls it her, quote, scariest look. And it really did freak people out. It was like goth before you know, true goth existed. Yeah. She doesn't talk much about relationships that she had during the time, but she did have a fling with a man named Frankie Savage that ended up sending her to New York. She mentions having issues at customs for her looks, but eventually they let her in. When she got there, she had a shock because she found out that Frankie already had a live-in girlfriend. So she ended up booking herself into the Chelsea Hotel She would spend her night at Max's Kansas City. Um, Michelle Robinson, she was Sid's last girlfriend after Nancy passed. Uh, She tells this crazy story about going on like a double date with Michelle with some like mafia gangsters. And she didn't know like what was really happening. And Michelle kind of advised her like drink slow. Don't be obvious about it. And the two gangster men got drunk and then they went to a hotel. The they fell asleep and Michelle robbed them. <laughs> she also visited the factory. She was photographed by Andy Warhol. She'd met him in London before and he was like, come over and see me if you're ever in New York. Uh, he showed her his print room. They met him a few more times before Andy ended up passing away. She also mentions when in New York, she was attacked by a man who attempted to rape her, mm-hmm. but he got scared off by her look. Okay. So. Okay. Must have been those red contact lenses. Yes. When back in London, Jordan passed management duties of Adam and Ants over to Malcolm McLaren since the pistols were over. Um, Malcolm's the one who kind of got Adam into his pirate outfit phase. This was kind of a new obsession in fashion. And, of course, Malcolm was always trying to use bands to sell the clothes, and Vivian was really doing the pirate thing at the time. Even though the ants were popular and well-liked at gigs, they really did struggle to get off the ground. They had bad luck with members coming and going. Adam really struggled with it. When a man named Marco joined the band, that's when they kind of melded together and became a, you know, a force. But another blow happened when Malcolm kind of turned on the band. He talked shit about them in the press. He found someone else he wanted to manage. It was rough going for Adam. If you're wondering if Jordan and Adam were ever a thing, the answer is yes. They were never in a real relationship. They just had like a light kind of affair. She talks about how Adam was a womanizer and had all these girlfriends and Jordan loved him. But that 
you know, relationship was more friendship for her. But she did find a spark in Kevin Mooney, who was also in the band. Adam was not at all pleased that Jordan and Kevin got together. It reflected in the band and in the friendships. But Jordan and Kevin ended up falling in love and they decided that was more important. And Kevin ended up leaving the band to be with Jordan. On June 23rd, 1981, on her 26th birthday, she got married to Kevin. Derek Jarman filmed the wedding. Her friends and parents were not supportive about it. And Vivian Westwood actually fired her from sex for getting married. Okay. Both Vivian and Malcolm didn't come to the wedding. She hadn't invited Adam. And she says she's always regretted that she didn't. It took years, years and years before Vivian and Jordan talked again. But when they did... Vivian blamed her relationship with Malcolm over their disintegration of the friendship. Vivian and Malcolm are in the process of splitting. And a quote from Vivian about this incident was that she felt, you know, she's betraying us by getting married. We belong to these people who suffer. We don't get married. We don't want to contribute to the system by having these approved relationships. She says, I was very angry with her about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Jordan, at this point, was kind of on her own. In 1980, she started a comedic play. She shot a film. She got pregnant. She decided to have an abortion. She said, I never wanted to have a child that I couldn't look after properly. So good for her. Kevin ended up forming a band that Jordan managed called Wide Boy Awake. I have a quote from her about working in the music industry. She says... I had really bad experiences with the record companies. Very sexist and awful things were said to me, and it was always one-on-one, so no one was ever around to witness it. Why don't you just fuck off out of here? Go home and open your legs like all women do, and that what you probably do best. That's all women are good for. That's what she was getting while working in the music industry. Yep. Yeah. So it was just not a healthy scene. It was also just like all about money, all about cocaine. But at home, it wasn't coke. It was heroin that was becoming the real issue. Most of her relationship with Kevin was spent high. He ended up getting 50,000 pounds when he left Adam and the Ants. They went through that in a year. He actually sold a bunch of her iconic clothes to get money for drugs. She finally realized just how bad things were when Kevin grabbed her cat and threw it against the wall so hard that the cat ended up getting brain damage oh no exactly exactly yeah she says he was never aggressive to her but she had no tolerance for animal cruelty and she knew if she stayed things would only get worse so she ended up asking her parents to move home and she said i walked out on kevin to save myself She ends up going through withdrawal at her parents' house. She told them it was the flu. She says it was one of the proudest things she's ever done was getting through that period of her life. Mm -hmm. After moving back to Seaford, she never left. Years after the divorce, Kevin did try to get her back with letters, lyrics, poems. But she's just about looking forward and not in the past at that time. So Jordan ends up moving back to Seaford. She's breeding Burmese cats randomly and she would showcase them at cat shows she also got really closer with her siblings which led to kind of a total reshaping of her life her sister had become a farmer's wife and her husband had a heart attack during the first lambing season and jordan went to help her during it neither of them knew anything about farming or taking care of animals but jordan really took to it right away and really enjoyed it and she decided to become a veterinarian and that's what she did for the next 30 years of her life what oh yeah. my god i was not expecting that that's so right? cool yeah and speaking of cats and being a farmer we have a barn cat now and she's the cutest little thing and she's probably Aww. not even a year old but she'll probably have kittens in like the spring or something so i will definitely oh. bring, bring you a kitten Oh, I can't wait. Here I can't go. wait. <laughs> Homegrown in January. Yeah, you, you kind of live in the Jordan life on the yep. farm. Yeah. Birthing animals. Yeah. So after her split with Kevin, Adam ended up calling her. They met, they forgave each other, and they had this really great reunion, which rekindled their friendship even stronger than before. And they were lifelong friends. 
Adam would go visit her at the farm many times in the next decades. He would help her out with the farming and the animals. And he even brought Heather Graham, the actress, because he was dating her once at the time. And she also worked with him again. She styled the band for some album covers and some tours. And she styled them for the iconic 1985 Live Aid show. And she ended up going on tour with them in America once more. In 1987, her mom died, and her dad was really never the same. He was put in a home. He died in 2003. Malcolm McLaren died in 2010 of cancer. He was just 64. That and the release of The Filth and the Furry kind of reconnected her with a lot of the old punk gang. In 2015, she put what was left of her entire clothing punk collection of, you know, the Westwood McLaren originals up for auction. Mm. And she says, despite the enormous number of memories attached to all those items, seeing them gone actually felt like a weight being lifted off me. So some were sold to museums or fashion archives, others to collectors who are going to treat them properly. So, yeah, I would love for a museum to do a show sometime. I'm sure they I'm sure they have already displayed, but I haven't seen them. So I want to I want to go. In 2015, she also did her first talk and interview where she discussed those years. She had sort of been quiet about it all that time. As I mentioned, she passed away this year on April 3rd. She was only 66 years old. I believe it was cancer, like Malcolm. When you're talking about, like, London, we're talking about the sex pills. We're talking about all that time. You, It feels like farther away now it feels like a longer time ago so when you're like she was only 66 it's like what yeah i know Mm. i know time's a funny thing i'm gonna end this with a quote from her book that she ends her book with she says i was always determined that i was going to excel at sport at ballet And as the living work of art I fashioned myself into on my journey to and my time at the epicenter of punk. I never turned down a challenge. I never compromised my belief in always doing something to the best of my ability. I wanted to dance and I did defy gravity. (gasps) Oh, it all made, yes. So that title of that book definitely makes sense. Exactly. And just like I said, her book, Defying Gravity, is just so filled with, like, the history of punk fashion, the gay and rock clubs of the time and their history, musical connections. There's so much backstory, so many people who are part of that scene discussing. You learn about so many other people that I just couldn't share in this because I have to condense it. But if you're... If you're into any of that, I 100% recommend it. It's such a fantastic, fantastic book. Amazing. That was so much fun. All the pictures that you're going to post for that will be amazing. Yeah. I know. It's going to be hard to pare them down. because A living work of art, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. She's the definition of a muse, you know? Absolutely. Her own person and inspired everyone around her. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Shanti, and thanks thank for all you the listeners. So much. Oh my God, what a what a delight! I am so happy to have heard that. And let me do Cassandra Peterson for you, please. I would love that, please. Yep. I've just finished my next. I have to write it all out, but I read a book on Dana Gillespie. She was one of Bowie's best friends, and she's done over. 80 albums I think at this point so she's got quite a story I think I'm going to be doing her next and if you'd love to join me for that as well yep I would love to and um I'll do Cassandra for you in in August beautiful all right sneak peek of what's to come amazing well thanks for having me it just makes my day and thanks to our listeners we'll see you next time thank you bye bye Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Lynx O'Leary.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.